Wow, a full countdown from five. That's a lot. I mean, I could have counted down from more, I guess. I do know numbers higher than five. I forgot them as soon as I learned that Excel was a thing that existed. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, not only did I crash my mountain bike and get high on painkillers for this podcast, I'm also pretty drunk because I went out for dinner, so... (laughs) It's going to oh be a good one. God. Painkillers and alcohol. You're such a role model. <laughs> Grad, stop listening now, please. <laughs> I am only drinking sparkle water now. All right, everybody, welcome to the Affix podcast here with Brian and Chris, where we are the jewelers of deflection to the monarchs of the internet intelligentsia. We look at the intellectual output of the internet and we add our opinions to them, have great discussions. Chris and I have been, what, having these kind of discussions for almost eight years now and we're more than happy to have you along. Exactly. It's very nice to have you here. Like Brian says, we're an Affix only. We don't really intend to have any original ideas. Sometimes we stray dangerously close. Generally, we like to just reflect on what we've read around the internet in any given week. Awesome. So for this week, let's kick into the feedback. I have a bit of feedback. So meritocracy was a big topic, of course, which doesn't surprise perhaps because it is a big topic and an important one. So there were two comments from two different individuals and I guess they're along similar lines. They're both along the lines of there is no single definition of merit. And this sort of touches on what we talked about last time. And then in in a capitalist society, merit means make a bunch of money. And I actually think that's a pretty good proxy for human values. I'm sort of not there with you because you think it's like a really close proxy for human values. But obviously (laughs) in these instances where the old age care homes were being run by people who could make more money it was not a perfect proxy for human values i think when people say oh money doesn't count and blah blah blah, we got to have other values i think like a lot of those values can be translated into money and it does help make to decisions but not everything and so if you do only value money as your measure of merit then you do get perverse things like people dying prematurely from what they should because it's cheaper to drug them and kill them than it is to pay for staff to take care of them Yep. Sorry. Let me just digest that and respond to it. I mentioned earlier, I've been reading the book Sapiens and I will get to a book review of Sapiens when I finish it. I'm going to commit to that here. It'll be a while. It's a big book. I remember. <laughs> uh, it's smaller than some others that I've read. It does have a big theme on it on the power of money. And it's kind of an anthropological book about, you know, the history of humanity, etc. And it kind of touches on one of the points that money itself and economic value has had this encroachment on human values over time. And it's just because really? it is so fungible that where people don't have particular values, they just try to trade away using money. So it's like if there are not shared values between cultures or, you know, if someone is just a bit less empathetic than someone else or they don't hold a particular moral, they will just try and pay someone to overcome that thing holding them back. Yeah, right. It slowly and slowly encroaches on the moral realm. And that's kind of, that's what your comment there about, Brian, you think money represents human values, uh, reminded me a lot of. There's a lot of human values. And as trust becomes more and more abstracted, money becomes more and more able to encroach upon those values. To be a stand-in for those human values, I suppose. And what do you think? Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it has ups and downs. Remember, lots of your friends listen to this podcast and they may judge you for your answer. It's pretty tricky because I actually think a lot of human values are quite biased and can result in negative outcomes. Yes, absolutely. Like this is a leading question, but I actually see some positives on it for sure. Yeah. So like one of my theories, and I've written a little essay about this, is about the very human value, possibly one of the most highly held ones, the value of love and the power that it has to sway opinion 
But the problem with that yep. is if you prioritize love, you're just going to be prioritizing the people closest to you to the detriment of the people who are more abstracted from you. Yeah. So by getting together in organizations like companies or just in like community groups and that kind of thing, by working with people who are typically outside of your family circle, in your friendship circle, it forces you to distance yourself slightly from those kind of more human values of love. And similarly, transacting in a market definitely does that. And by abstracting you away from that extreme human value, it actually eliminates a huge bias that you have and it can yeah. get you to interact more positively with the world, even though you are becoming almost less human by doing it, which is a bad thing. Like you got to find a balance in there. And I think, yeah, it's not all or nothing for sure. And this is probably the nuance that we bring to this podcast is taking the extreme approach on anything is probably the bad approach. <laughs> <laughs> There's always nuance to be had. So, yeah, I mean, certainly I agree that love is a very deeply human value and it doesn't have much place in the market. I know there's positives. I, mean, you know, I think love is one of the utmost human values and certainly it's factored incredibly highly in my life. You know, I've said before, I've spent thousands of dollars on making April comfortable without a heartbeat, knowing that full well that that could probably save someone's life in the third world. But it's like no part of me is torn up about those decisions that I made last year to make April comfortable because I love her. But it did remind me of an article that I read recently, one of Tyler Cohen's links, I'm pretty sure, on countries or particularly communities with the closest family ties where, you know, you really love your family and your business is often conducted with families, have the lowest rule of law. Like those family ties overrule the law because you tend to only deal with people that you love and care for directly. And so anyone outside your little clan, you're like, ah, screw them. We'll just screw them over and we'll rip them off in business dealings and we will steal from them. It doesn't matter because they're not people I love. So they're not really human. So who cares about them? Yeah, it's like it really, really alienates people who are outside of your immediate group, right? It creates the us and them, whereas the money treats everyone as us. It just treats them inhumanly as us. <laughs> um, yes, a double-edged sword indeed. But yeah, your point there, like it's been a theme in economic research in the last decade is those ties on the power of institutions and cultural collective values, those kind of things. And what you're talking to there around like prioritizing family connections and stuff, have a think about that, listeners. What that means is cronyism plays a huge part in any of those economic circumstances, cronyism and probably corruption. So yeah, blood is thicker than water, as it were. Exactly. By weakening those ties, that's kicked off another thought in my head. There was a recent study. Um, I think it is, it might not have even been a study. It might be a book, The Weirdest People in the World. Yep. And the theory behind that is that the Catholic Church or the Christian Church's banning of cousin marriage is actually the biggest driver behind the economic growth and innovation in Western society over everyone else because it stopped everyone from being able to really favor their cousins and have those close family ties and just have heaps of cronyism. Yes, bizarrely, the Catholic Church, while trying to foster stronger communities by banning you, yeah, marrying your little cousins and then you just have clans where sort of everyone marries each other and you all share uncles and you're just... You are literally a clan with a fairly tight group of 20, 30, 50 of you. You have to go outside of your clan in order to find a mate and therefore you have to deal with the wider world a lot more. And that started the Western institutions. And weird, I believe, if it's the same one that I'm thinking of, stands for white, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Yeah, I can't remember if it's white or Western, but yeah, basically that. Oh, it could be Western. Yeah, no, the, this was not a tangent I was expecting to go on on just feedback. Well, but there tangent. you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it was a leading question. Are their values higher than money? But I do think money, uh, you know, it's an important one. I do, I quite like Matt Levine's take because this email on this particular comment also said, you know, we used to have a balanced scorecard 
backyard where you'd look at your impact on community, environment, and people, et cetera. And Matt Levine really hates this because when you give a, a CEO the opportunity to choose between making profits and caring for the community and caring, they can basically do whatever they want because whatever they want to do, they could just say, oh, well, I'm doing it for the environment. And it happens to pay them a huge bonus. So it's like, oh, I'm doing it for the community. And it happens to build like a new stadium for their favorite sports team or whatever. Like money is at least a very hard target. It can sometimes be a perverse target, but it's one that's less open to being gamed by like, if I have five different targets, I can just make whatever I want to do fit at least a couple of them and then just talk my way into being able to do that when I've got the power over a company. Yeah. And if anyone's going to be able to talk their way into executing a strategy, it's going to be a CEO, of course, because that's their whole job. That's the, Yes. They tend to be charismatic and strategic. So <laughs> getting their strategy over the line is literally their job. So if you give them too much leeway, they can do whatever they want with the company that they run, but don't own. And it may not be in the interests of the shareholders or the employees or the community. Who knows? Yeah. It, it just gives another angle for principal agent problems to come in and for someone to be serving themselves rather than serving the best of the overall organization or society. Yeah. So I have mixed thoughts on money being the be all and end all. I think I'm further on that path than probably many people that I know, but I'm not all the way down because there's clearly, you know, it can lead to things when you get all the way down the path of money is the only thing that matters. And if you're making money, you are doing good in the world. I mean, see our previous conversations on financial independence, right? Yes, indeed. And so a tangent to that or a similar point on the merits of meritocracy was that merit doesn't necessarily trade over. So I guess the example was given as Dr. Oz and he is by all accounts like a world-class surgeon, like one of the best of the best. If you want, I don't know what he did, heart surgery, let's say you wanted Dr. Oz because he is just absolutely incredibly skilled with a scalpel, knows his anatomy back and forth. But now he has a show where they're like, there is no quack medicine that he won't endorse. He loves it. He loves all of it. I don't know whether he's unable to analyze it with his scientific brain or he just doesn't care because of all the money he's making. But, you know, whatever quackery unscientific medicine, he'll spruik it on his show. So he has merit in a medical setting, but that merit doesn't translate at all, even to a really closely adjacent setting. And you see this all the time with public intellectuals, right? The best economists are like, well, I know what psychology policy should be. And the best, you know, scientists would be like, well, I know what the public mask manufacturing policy should be. And like, you're an idiot. You should stay in your lane. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. I could go on with more examples of that. I think a famous one is Steve Jobs looking into his own cancer treatment, that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, that's a really interesting insight. The fact that credibility is transferable, but yes, talent is not necessarily. It just makes a merit a much harder thing to run. It depends where you define that merit, like how narrowly down you want to focus it. Mm. Uh, there is no general purpose merit. So we give the people of the society the most merit. We give them all the political and economic power because that person doesn't exist. They only exist in very narrow fields. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Good feedback. Yeah, I found those. They were really, really good points that we didn't cover off last time. I'm really glad to have the opportunity to, to launch back into this discussion because I thought it was a good discussion and I think those are really, really good builds. So thank you, listeners, both of whom are Patreons. Fantastic. Following up on my frustration with Apple Podcasts from last podcast, I looked at Spotify and the show notes in there are generally pretty good. They messed a little bit with Chris's ASCII art, but other than that, no. they're generally fine. You can just click on more details and they'll give you all the show notes you want. So check out the show notes that Chris puts together. He puts a lot of effort into them at affix.live <laughs> and you can click on the episodes there. Or if you're using Spotify, just click on more details. If you're in Overcast, swipe to the right. If you're in some Android app, I hope that you know how to use it because I don't. Uh, 
It's okay, listeners. You can just listen to us. You don't have to read the show notes if you don't want to. Just know that they're there if you ever do want to. I mean, we're an affix, though. And by bolting on to these articles, they should be able to, like, look at our show notes and read the original sources and get the most from it. And they're probably much smarter than us, the original source. They actually had the original idea. We're just, like, commenting on it. Exactly. We're just the bolt-ons. We're just fun. We're just the bolt-ons. We're just an entertaining affix to what you should be reading. I mean, predominantly, I guess we're suffixes. We rarely preface anything, but, you know, maybe for the listeners we're prefacing them. We really get ahead of the game one day. I did want to call out the first email we've got from someone I don't know personally, and this is the FI Explorer. And I really appreciate you reaching out and letting us know that you enjoyed our podcast. And what I really, really appreciate is that you put capital F, capital I, Explorer. And so when I read your email, I thought it was the Flexplorer. And I just thought you went around, <laughs> around the globe, just like flexing your huge muscles. So that's pretty awesome. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I saw that come through and that just filled my heart with joy. And we even went to both emails. I was like amazed. So there we go. Amazing. So thank you very much. The FI Explorer has one of these FI blogs. If you're interested in his journey, you can check him out. But that was the most thing I want to say that I, I like, I want to be the Flexplorer. Maybe I will <laughs> see if I can register that domain before this podcast goes live. Weird flex, but okay. Uh, <laughs> So we talked about inflation and how resistant companies, and this is now dealings with major retailers and how reluctant they are to raise prices. Like we, the manufacturer, sell to a retailer and the retailer sells to the customer and the retailer hates raising prices. They do not want to do it. So even if we raise our prices to them, sometimes they'll just wear the lower margin and they won't raise the prices of the consumer or they'll just tell us, we don't care if your costs are going up, deal with it. You're going to have to take lower margin because we are not increasing the price to the consumer. They hate it. Or they'll be super sneaky and say, all right, so you raise the price, but now you also have to fund a bunch of promotions so that your average price <laughs> goes down and we actually make more money. Yeah. It's a weird game that a lot of people play. It's just it's hard for me to see that as a positive sum game for all parties involved. It's just lots of trickery mm. to try to work out who's going to pay for what in the deal. But anyway, this listener works for a regulated business, a monopoly, so a government service that is contracted out to a private company, but it is a government-defined monopoly service, uh, you know, in line with the grid. And they don't have any problem passing on the costs. They go to the government and the government says, we need you to invest in more X. And they're like, okay, we're going to have to charge more then. And the government says, we don't want you to do that. And they're like, too bad. We just charge more. That's what we're going to do because otherwise we can't afford the things you want us to do. Yeah, It's definitely interesting to see into other businesses that we have a view of how businesses works because of where we've worked in our time. And certainly not all of them work like that. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is like, it's not necessarily the fault of government that these things just get passed on and the government can't negotiate effectively, but it's just the distance between the provider and the end consumer, right? Because we've got these mediating factors in retail, being retailers or being wholesalers, then retailers um, that just create that extra little bit of friction in the system. But when you're an energy provider, I guess you're still going to a wholesaler. Well, you are the wholesaler and you're going through retailers. I mean, it's the fact that there's no competition, right? Yeah. If, you know, Woolworths puts up their price, they're worried that Coles won't and then more people will shop at Coles. And so not only will they lose the business from our product that we were selling them, but the entire shopping basket, because you're not going to go to Coles just for one product. Once you're shopping at Coles, you're shopping at Coles and you're buying your entire groceries there. So that's what the retailers, I think, are worried about when they don't want to rise prices. Whereas it's like, if you're buying electricity, there's really only one person you're buying electricity from, and that's the grid. Yep. Makes sense. Um, I don't know. I need to relook at this because I was surprised there was an argument in a book called Can You Outsmart an Economist? Outlining why monopolies wouldn't raise their prices unnecessarily. But in this case, it is necessarily because they're increasing their baseline costs, right? So yeah. anyway, 
Maybe I'll look that up. And these monopolies are fairly heavily regulated. I don't think it's a lack of government power. I think the government yeah, yeah. Them. Well, there was a whole thing about the power industry, and maybe I should talk to this particular listener about this uh, off the podcast at some point. But what was it like 10 years ago? There was a big fight against the power industry, just gold plating all of the infrastructure because they got paid a fixed markup on their basically capital investment spend yes, or their yep. annual operating costs. And I wonder how that played out. I don't even know if that's still the setup. Uh, I think that is the setup, but that is why they have to go to the regulator to, in order to ask to invest. So this is exactly what they're talking about, that the government will say, hey, we need you to put in a bunch of new underground wires because all these overground wires are very ugly and we don't like them anymore. And the power company says, yep, no problem, can do. That means price for your constituents will now cost X. Yeah. That is like, that's their negotiation point is we charge a percentage plus on capital investment. So if you want us to do more capital investment, we're just going to charge more. That is the deal. Interesting. One more question that we missed last time that was directly asked and one more question that wasn't asked but we need to answer anyway. <laughs> of course. So it was a question on UBI and the question was, do the calculations take on population growth and the level of unemployment to be feasible and would it keep up with inflation? And essentially my calculations posited no adverse effects on employment, which is probably optimistic. But I think that a lot of the people taking time off to take purely UBI would likely be in that low income. Like if you're earning under $18,000, you pay literally no tax in Australia. And I would say with the low income tax offset, if you, even if you're earning 20 to 30 grand, your tax bill cannot be that much. So yep. I actually don't see that drop out of the workforce drastically impacting things. Theoretically, it would still impact economic output though, right? It would impact economic output. Yes, it would definitely impact economic output. These people used to be doing productive work and now they are not doing economically productive work. Although, again, a lot of the people in the studies that I've read who do drop out of the workforce do it to care for elderly, for children, et cetera, et cetera. So yep. it's one of these difficult things that's not valued. What, what, yeah, like Net-net, yeah. the actual value within the country still might end up being positive, but there likely would be some erosion of the tax base based on the fact that they would be going to untaxed economic value, yeah, right? Yes, so it would be untaxed economic work. And I do wonder like, where it may be positive is like if you're taking better care of your elderly relative, and that's why you've decided to drop out of the workforce to care for your aging parents or whatever, does that actually reduce the amount of time they have to go to hospital, right? Yeah, You're yeah. actually doing more valuable work working for them than working your $20,000 a year minimum wage part-time job. Maybe. Yeah, quite possibly. Which, but that would like that would be a double hit, right? You're not doing the $20,000 of economically valuable work and some rich doctor isn't getting paid to do emergency surgery on your dad. So Yeah, that's interesting. It's, a, it's definitely a better outcome for everyone involved, but it would, uh, it would reduce GDP figures and taxable revenue. Yeah. I don't know. People would come up with the counter argument there of, oh, no, you're just doing the broken windows fallacy. But your point remains like the overall value in the system would be higher but the numbers that we record with regards to that value would still decrease yeah the broken windows fallacy here is you can create a bunch of economic value in a system by going around and smashing everyone's windows and then they have to spend yep. money replacing the their windows. Spent money and then the glazier's got money to buy a steak so the butcher makes money and then the butcher's got money to buy bread and so the baker makes money etc cetera, etc cetera. and the argument against that is well there's an opportunity cost there against that right so if you hadn't smashed the windows then people would have spent the money instead of replacing the windows on just going out for a nicer dinner or that kind of thing. Possibly a dinner with meat and bread. What the second best option for the surgeon in that case would be, I don't know, maybe it'd still be pretty valuable. Economics is tricky. <laughs> Economics is very tricky. Maybe it's the 18th hole of golf, maybe, finally. Maybe it's the 19th hole of golf. Mm, I think the doctors could spend a good amount of value there, that's for sure. 
Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, so UBI, it's a tricky thing to balance. And- it, it's, it is very, like, you know, societal changes on that scale. You can make predictions, but I would not say even the smartest economists would be, like, super-duper sure they know exactly what would happen if we were to implement a UBI. And the other thing that would be a concern, which will probably lead into the major discussion of this thing, is aging populations, particularly in the West. Yeah. We are getting older and older, and as more and more people are at retirement age, I mean, we've got this problem anyway while we have a pension. In Australia, we're sort of trying to do something about it with a superannuation scheme rather than a pension, but... If there's less of a percentage of the people working and more people are just hoping to live off their retirement income and enjoy life, then it is much harder for those fewer, that smaller percentage of the population to provide for everyone because they're the ones doing the work. No one's doing the work. Things just don't get done. Yep. It's a very tricky one. And it kind of ties to another point around wealth. Like if more and more people are just relying on passive wealth with regards to defined contribution superannuation currently, that's just going to be crowding the capital markets as well, right? So your yields are going to be lower. So it seems pretty likely with demographic trends that capital yields are going to go down just as naturally as a result of that or people are just going to have to work longer or both or we finally invent fully automated luxury communism and the robots do it all in space maybe in space maybe we'll get there all right which is going to be first probably space yeah i mean we've got luxury and we've had communism so i feel like we've just got to get the combination it'll only work when you get the combo it's got to getting the it's getting all the levers in the right balance is the tricky bit i really think it's the fully automated bit that we're struggling with that we're lacking at it so far and then the last question i've been looking forward to and then the to most this. important question which i cannot believe we missed last time it wasn't explicitly asked but it was implicitly asked by one of our patreons so brian if you had to choose would you have ham hands or a sunscreen armpit so your hands are made of ham and you can shave them unlimited and you would have enough food. And whenever you shaved your ham, you would get fresh ham and it would just grow back immediately. Or would you prefer to have sunscreen squirt out your armpit at will? It's ham hand, by the way. We don't have two hands because you've got to have like one flexible hand. Oh, right. One workable hand, one hand, which is ham. Yep. And you're exactly right. The ham hand grows back like Wolverine's hands do, but it just grows back as ham and you can just eat it. (laughs) (laughs) And as tempting as that is, and you know, that might be good for animal welfare and, you know. Yeah. Put these vegan burger places out of business. (laughs) Uh, Being an Australian, I feel like it is my duty to go sunscreen armpit and represent slip slop and slap that is important would you share the sunscreen would anyone let you share the sunscreen i mean i might sell it for a tidy profit uh but i don't know that anyone would want to buy it (laughs) just don't tell them the manufacturer (laughs) no one's gonna read the labels too closely surely Uh, yeah no i'm a sunscreen armpit man through and through yeah it just seems like less of an impact into my own life like maybe you could cure world hunger with your ham hand but that would be a whole industrial operation where you've got to be continuously cutting off your own hand which just it's a big price to pay, is all. Yeah, and like if you go out in the sun, your hand's going to get all stinky and you'll have yeah, to shave it off. Yeah, going to find that jelly unless you put it in a handbag. I think there's a lot of compromises. Where a sunscreen armpit, that just seems very useful. It's like today I would have put some sunscreen on, but I didn't have any in the car. I didn't have a sunscreen armpit, so what was I going to do? Got mm. probably very slightly sunburned. Here's a question. Would a vegetarian eat a ham hand? I've asked this. I think a vegetarian likely would. A vegan, maybe less. Okay. I think I think you just got to go all or nothing. Because I have asked vegan friends of mine, like if they had met the chicken and it was a happy chicken and it laid an egg and it was a happy egg and it wasn't a even free range chickens is still a lot of cruelty from my understanding. It's like it's a marketing and it's definitely better than battery cage hens, but it's not a happy life that even free range chickens are really living. 
Uh, so they refuse to eat any animal products on that basis. But like if they had met the chicken and they'd watched it poof out the egg, would they eat that egg? And it does seem like once you've got the choice to go vegan, the temptation is too great that, you know, if you eat an egg here, you're like, ah, oh, well, I guess I eat eggs now. And ah, oh, well, if it's a battery egg, ah, oh, whatever. And then it's like a slippery slope. So I think it is a real bright line. So I think if it was ham, a lot of vegans would certainly still draw that bright line. Yeah. Okay. So it's very much that kind of Kantian view of dietary ethics. There we go. Yeah. I think when I discussed with them, they thought, you know, it's not a bad point and I don't think it is drastically unethical to eat those eggs. But within myself, I've made the decision I do not eat animal product and that is an absolute. Got it. All right. There we go, listener. So you got double sunscreen armpits. I wonder if we took it to a different country, whether it would be a different worldview. Yeah, I mean, living in Australia, those sunscreen armpits are just very tempting. I use sunscreen quite a lot. <laughs> my Canadian friend, when I whipped out my pump pack of sunscreen that is like 500 mil of sunscreen in a pump pack, he's like, I mean, I never thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense in Australia. <laughs> like, yeah, it does. You <laughs> have a lot of sunscreen, man. Uh, yeah, sunscreen does feel gross, but it is so necessary. As always, listeners, we are supported purely by your generosity through Patreon. We have now seven or eight patrons, which is really, really awesome. This is becoming a show, and we've sort of got some ideas on how we can spend some of that money to improve the show. Brian and I promise not to just retire on the dividends of all your hard work. We will do our very level best to make the show better. So we really, really do appreciate all our Patreons. Some of my friends have tried to hide the fact that it was them that was a Patreon, which made us excited. But there is now a Patreon who I don't know who they are. If they are a friend of mine, again, I appreciate you. But if you're someone who has found our podcast and finds us valuable, enough to donate to that is really flattering thank you very much it's uh, just such nice feedback that people are enjoying the show you're probably not enjoying it as much as i because i really love these conversations <laughs> with brian but um you're you're enjoying it more than i thought anyone might so thank you listeners we really appreciate you listening to the show we really appreciate when you comment when you email us when you patreon or when you share us with a friend that's really the only way podcasts grow as far as i can tell uh, other than making fun of other journalists and hoping that they bite back but brian won't let me do that so your recommendations to friends are the only way we can grow and uh, uh, I know a lot of you have been doing that and getting good feedback. So thank you very much to all of you. Yeah, thank you so much, listeners. And continued thanks for your support, both monetarily, as we've discussed our love of money here. Uh, <laughs> um, and of course, for sharing the love of the podcast to others. Oh, and I will say thanks to your efforts. We are now in the top 25% of podcasts out there in the world. So Fantastic. numbers would put us in the top 20, 25%, which is just super difficult. I like that's much faster than I thought we'd ever possibly get there. That's amazing. Thank you so much, everyone who listens. And please do continue to share, give us reviews, do whatever you can to get the word of the affix out there. Yeah, and tell us what you want us to talk about. If we're if we've got boring topics and you wish we would stop, then we can stop talking about that and talk about what you're interested in. Well, as long as I'm interested in too. Again, I have to enjoy this podcast the most. <laughs> That's the most critical thing to me. Awesome. With all the great feedback that you are giving us, audience, we need to come up with a name for you. In my Diablo speedrun commentary, I called you Affixes, and I like that. But if anyone's got a suggestion for a different name for the uh, listenership, totally on board for that. So with all your great feedback, we're already well into our usual scheduled time for recording. So I'm going to try and keep this next bit short and sharp. This is my editor's notes, notes I made to myself as I was working through editing the previous podcast. First up, we had a quick discussion last week on how journalists are going to be able to refer each other and how potentially you can just get an audience on Substack by picking fights with other people or doing other blog search engine optimization stuff. In the last week, Freddie DeBoer had a comment in amongst one of his big screeds about it's all just displacement. And he was basically like, yeah. 
That's exactly how I got all the attention. I just picked fights with all of the mainstream media all the time. And everyone's like, how does this guy get any attention? He's such a jerk. Oh my God. Like what's going on? And he's like, I was just me, man. And I picked fights with you and you got suckered in. Thank yep. you for the attention. Threw a bunch of chum into the water and all the blue checks on Twitter went straight for the kill. When everyone's talking about Fred Zabar, people are like, hmm, maybe I'll check out his subsec. I mean, I subscribed. Yeah, it's pretty good. That one at least was very good. Worth, worth the read. Yeah, he's got some good comments on the media, which I liked. He says, I'm kind of sick of picking fights with the media now. Lots of people are subscribing to my Substack and I want to do normal journalism again <laughs> rather than just meta-journalism about journalism. You might lose me there then. Yeah, well, maybe that'll be the end of me listening to him, but I enjoyed it for a while. We'll see, we'll see. Cool. Secondly, I can't remember when it was, but we had a discussion on the Grumpy Economist and his reflections on the Gini coefficient before taxes and transfers instead of after and the fact that if you are so obsessed with the Gini coefficients and inequality before taxes and and transfers, you're never really going to solve the problem. And I had a bit of a think about this in the intervening time. And the argument I could see for it would be the fact that everyone hates the story about the CEOs these days who get paid hundreds of times the lowest paid worker compared to 50 years ago when it was like the average was, I don't know, 10 times the lowest paid worker was CEO pay. And then it's exploded in the last 10 years. And I just wanted to raise that as like, maybe that's the angle that John Cochran was missing there was the fact that inequality seems to have blown out because the people at the top of the system seem to have figured out how to really game it. Yes, I feel like I had the same thought and then didn't write it down in my comments. But yes, exactly that, that he's like, oh, well, if you're going to to define Gini coefficients before taxes and transfers, then you can never possibly fix this system. Sort of inherently says that there are CEOs that are worth, due to their merit, millions of times more than the average Harvard grad with their 20,000 in debt. I mean, and also poor people, um, <laughs> which is maybe a bit of a depressing view of humanity that like I could very justly see that the view that the government should be trying to solve some of these power differentials where CEOs can bring pressure to a point and if you fire me then I have lost 100% of my jobs whereas you have lost 3% of your workforce or 0.001% of your workforce so the power differential between me as a bottom level worker and you as the CEO is immense and maybe it's not the fact that you're way more valuable than me that you earn 50 million times more than I do but the fact that you've managed to put yourself on the top of this power hierarchy that you have managed to change the split of the distribution of earnings to take 50 million dollars more than me and I think in anyone's perfect world you would not be fixing inequality by just directly taking from the CEO and giving to the poor people you would be creating a system where they can bargain more as equals and the dividends to labor pay as well as the dividends to capital or the dividends to management now there's opinions as to whether you know managements are more valuable and certainly you have some of those quite strongly and I, I agree with you I think some people are just much more effective and much more useful than others and generate a lot more output and could well lay claim to that output and I actually don't have a problem with then taking that economic output and giving it to the poor people so that they can live happy lives and be fulfilled sort of thing but there is a very good argument I think that government should be trying to reduce those power imbalances so that the imbalance pay doesn't happen in the first place rather than just letting these power imbalances happen then taxing and transferring yeah I kind of have as you alluded to there, I kind of have a slightly different view. I mean, I think Tyler Cowen, again, we've referenced this many times, worth the readership's time reading Big Business, and maybe we'll get to do a proper book review of that at some oh, point. 100% we're doing that on a podcast. Yeah, he's got some good arguments around, you know, what has driven the differential in CEO pay over the time. But at the same time, I'm skeptical that they 100% explain it. And I kind of buy into some of the arguments that, yeah, CEOs and the way that options and those kind of 
shareholder value incentives have played out, have given disproportionate power and economic returns to those in the C-suite. And saying that it's not worth, not even regulation, but just regulators even considering those and looking at those schemes and seeing if there could be a better way to do it feels kind of naive and short-sighted. I think it is worth putting that on the table and that could impact the pre-taxes and transfers Gini coefficient. Yeah, which I think, you know, like if I had to choose and you give me the option, if I could have the same level of inequality, but one was pre-taxes and transfers and one was post, I would always choose the pre-taxes and transfers because that actually still feels like a more equal society. And then you don't need the taxes and transfers to get back to that. Um, uh, My concern with that general view is it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the best outcome for everyone though, right? Because if you could have better economic growth and growing the pie overall better in a more unequal society and then cut it up after it's grown and give everyone a better outcome. But, you know, there's, there's so much complexity in what we as humans value and by doing that you may disenfranchise people and just be equalizing consumption rather than production and equalizing production in some areas is important because people derive self-worth through work and if everyone's just on the ubi because they don't have anything to do then that's a challenge right so yeah absolutely actually this is a comment that i've neglected to write down in my notes but certainly one of the big pushbacks to UBI that I could get behind, UBI being universal basic income that we talked about a few podcasts ago, would be that lack of purpose, that if you can just sit in your home, and I guess we addressed it maybe a little bit, but if you can just sit in your home and play video games, we've robbed you of any sense of purpose or reason to do anything. And that may be negative for you. Like, definitely, I need extrinsic motivation. I need someone to poke me and say, hey, you got to come to work and do this code, otherwise we're going to stop paying you. Um, and sometimes I don't feel like it, but that, <laughs> that little poke is like, no, I really, I'm obligated to do this. And once I get into it, I feel much better about myself and I feel like I'm contributing value and I like finishing tasks, but it can be hard for me to get myself started. And if I got just money for doing nothing, I may never get myself started yeah. and be a much unhappier person as a result. We said in the FIRE podcast that getting started is often the hardest part. We did, and I stand by that. Cool. So we discussed last week's salaries, and I can't honestly remember how much I cut from that discussion, but I never mentioned one of the books that was really insightful to me after I became a manager on this front around how salary wage increases are structured in big businesses, that kind of thing. It's a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. He was one of the early employees at Netscape. He founded one of the companies that originally was like the foundation of cloud computing for the internet. He's now one of the big bosses at Andreessen Horowitz, which is a huge venture capital fund in the US. Probably the Horowitz boss. I think his name is on the uh, A16Z. You may have heard of them if you're into VC world. Yeah, for sure. Which is just the coolest name. (laughs) You know, we now call Kubernetes K8s because Kubernetes is also hard to spell. So they called themselves Andreessen Horowitz and everyone's like, I can't spell neither of those last names and therefore I can't Google you. Uh, So they're like, how about we just call ourselves A16Z because it's A and then 16 letters and then a Z and that'll do, (laughs) which is just really cool. I think that's just a really cool way to name it. That's super cool. I love it. Yeah, so this book is about his reflections after the time that he was CEO of these businesses when he was first starting them up. And in it, he has a section on why you should have an annual process for wage increases. So in my current employer, we call that the annual merit process where you just get a performance rating and then that flows through into you get X percent raise in the year. And his argument for why you have that is so that manager's time isn't 90% just being asked for a raise by their employees. So by having it set in stone, this is a once a year process 
You don't let the people who are the best negotiators just get the best outcome. You don't get the people who are just the squeakiest wheel get the outcome. Everyone is treated equally and managers and people can just focus on doing the work rather than focusing on, hey, can you get me that raise? What's going on with that raise? Yeah, and so I think he raises the point, and particularly with executive compensation strategy, because these are the people who are most used to being the squeaky wheel and negotiating and cutting deals, et cetera, in that your sales executive, you might have hired them when your company was earning $10 million a year. And potentially within six months, your company is now earning $15 million a year or $20 million a year. The growth of these startups can be quite rapid. And so your sales director could very easily say, hey, I'm now the sales director of a $20 million operation. If I look at my market value out there, I should be earning X and you only pay me 70% of X, you'd need to pay me more money. And if, if you say, you know what, you're right. And you know, they probably are right. Their market value is higher and you could give them that pay rise. But once the rest of the executives realize that you can just go to the boss and ask for a pay rise every time you're a duties creep, they're going to be doing it all the time. Yeah, they're just going to be wasting all this time. So yeah. this is why you have to say once a year, you're probably right. And we're eight months into the year. So if you can just wait four more months, I will give you a big pay rise because you are totally right. You're totally worth more, but you've got to hang on for four more months because I'm not discussing this now. Yep. And exactly to your point last week as well, like you've got to bake some of that anticipated growth into the opening offer as well, right? Yeah. If you're consistently behind the eight ball, you may as well go work for another company and you will lose good people. For sure. And then quick side note on that, while we're talking salaries, I did mention that I find it so weird that in the West, we don't share our salaries. I'm not going to tell you my salary on this podcast, but if we ever meet in person, I will happily discuss. There you go. Um, And then final, final note to myself. I can't remember when it was. It was either last week or the week before I mentioned how I'm getting made redundant. Uh, Please don't take that as a note to pity me, okay? Because like I don't deserve it. I have made many people redundant leading up to this redundancy. It's kind of like that George Clooney movie. Many people have mentioned it to me. You're not the Um, first person to think of it. Um, Up in the air where he's the guy who's like the ax man. I got brought into a job. I made several people redundant. I did my best to look out for those people and now I'm being made redundant. I feel worse for the people I made redundant. I don't feel bad at all for myself. So please, no pity. All right. So special treat this week, listeners. Chris is going to be delivering a book review of Ross Duthat's The Decadent Society. So we've mentioned Ross Duthat a couple of times previously. He writes a column for the New York Times. He's currently launched a Substack in the last few weeks, as every author seems to have done. Uh, He's got a big background in Catholicism, I believe it is, and discussions of religion in the United States, which that's its own whole thing that I could have some discussions on separately. But definitely is a very engaging writer. And Chris has messaged me several times while reading this book. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I hope I can do it justice. I I feel like I took a lot away from this book, but it's hard to express. Also, I feel like this book was extremely popular in the circles that we read two years ago. So we're well behind the eight ball and everything maybe that it could be said about this book has been said about this book. Like you say, Ross Duthat is a Catholic and he is a conservative, but he writes for the New York Times. So he's got got that modern cosmopolitan liberal writing style, I guess you could say, but he is a deeply religious Catholic and conservative. He is not a Donald Trump conservative. I do not think he is a fan of Donald Trump at all, but he is, you know, he is religious and conservative. He would be pro-life. He would be, I wonder what his stance on gay marriage would be, but he holds a lot of conservative views. So he's an unusual author, particularly his writing style, because I've heard him described as unabashedly American. So he is a big techno optimist. He thinks that technology can help us. He likes innovation. He likes entrepreneurialism. He likes a lot of those Silicon Valley kind of values, but he is also a Catholic and a conservative. So he's, he comes from a, a fairly unique place amongst the writers that I read and was very interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating because everything that we seem to read is very secular and secular being not religious is probably the yes, easiest with, way to put with it. No 
reference to, to religion for sure. I would struggle to name another author I read that I definitely know is religious, and I know many are definitely, definitely not. Ross quite stands out amongst the... Um, I mean, a lot of the authors we came out probably came out of the new atheist movement before it turned into the rationalist yeah, or before true. it splintered, and part of that became the, the rationalist movement. So that would be a good indication of why so many of them are atheists, because uh, that's literally how they got their start writing. So yes, does that stands out. And so to describe the book, Decadence uses this term. I'm sure he uses this term provocatively because I have a few fluff points before I get into the deeper pieces that I took. He doesn't mean decadence as in, you know, orgies and drugs and booze and whatever. Apparently there's a French-American kind of term of decadence, which is just unchanging, just satiated, like there's nothing more to grow, there's nothing more to do, you're just, you're static sort of thing. Yeah, I got it. it. I've got to Google it. All right, well, while you do that, we've had in our previous discussions off the podcast, many times referenced my inability to be appropriately debaucherous and my thought when you said the word decadent was, you know, melted chocolate on ice cream <laughs> rather than orgies and <laughs> those other extreme acts. Brian, so, you know. you're just such a square. <laughs> you earn so much money. Why aren't you just in rivers of girls with powdered room full of cocaine? This is what I would do if I earn your money, my friend. Uh, no, nah, it's just boring. Just give me a spreadsheet any day. <sighs> I do. I give you a spreadsheet and behind podcast editing. <laughs> Anyway, so I can't find the definition of decadence, but like, here's a quote that stood out. Our present civilizational predicament in a nutshell. We're pretty rich, but we're not getting richer. Government used to work and it doesn't anymore. Literature was once innovative and beautiful, but now repetitive and no one is having any kids. And this is the moral of the book is that Western society particularly has grown and grown and, you know, done many marvels, sent people to the moon, indoor plumbing, indoor toilets, electricity, uh, and all of that happened in the 70s. It's a real, it's actually quite a follow-on from the Great Stagnation, which I was... I was just about to mention it. Like, it sounds like another tweak on the Great Stagnation, on the word stagnation. It's kind of like just a complacent sense of stagnation. Is this kind of what I'm reading from it? Yes, stagnant but happy. Yeah, stagnant but happy is maybe not a bad description, so... Uh, Ross is definitely, definitely riffing off Tyler Cohen's The Great Stagnation, which we reviewed on an earlier podcast, and more talking about the societal forces that might keep us here. So you could think that we would be locked out of this or we would go into decline, but his worry is that we will just stay in this decadent stasis for many, many years, that there will be nothing to knock us off our ledge. There's no barbarians at the gates. No one's coming to sack Rome. We can just spin in this decadence and unhappiness for many dozens of years, I gather, until our our birth rate drops so far below replacement that we're all too old to take care of ourselves and uh, either the humanity dies out or another society takes over from the West. A more fertile society, probably out of Africa. Well, almost certainly. I mean, that's the place with the best replacement rate. Based on the birth rates, 55% of the world would descended from Africa today in not that long, 50 years. Yeah. It's huge. And it just means that societies like ours that have good institutions, but also are very welcoming to immigrants, are probably pretty well set up for success, I would say. Like, this is just my position. I sent you a message earlier in the week that Australia has not had an above replacement birth rate since the 1970s, but still, we still managed to grow our population predominantly through immigration. So it's just astonishing. Well, there's only two places population growth can come (laughs) from, right? It's birth rate or immigration. So if we're below replacement on birth rate, it's immigration. People don't just spontaneously appear. Have we invented time travel yet? Oh, time travelers. Maybe that's a way to increase the birth rate or the population growth. No, I don't think it's going to work. I think it's too hard. I think there's easier ways. Okay, continue. Sorry. So I will say, just as a fluff point, this is a man who likes big words. Now, I am a man who looks, likes big words. I sometimes use two big words for my own good. I remember using the word adroit at work, which is just such a good word. Even the word adroit sounds adroit. And <laughs> raising a few eyebrows, I was like, oh, good use of the word adroit there, Chris. I know it. <laughs> 
But this Roth is hard. He likes big words even more than I do. I had to highlight a few. He uses anime, which is the feeling of disconnect and listlessness driven by modern society. So that anime of living in a high-rise apartment building where you're surrounded at all times by thousands of people, yet few feel incredibly alone. He uses quietus, which is a riff on suicide, just a very... I mean, I wouldn't say depressed suicide, but I feel like all suicides are pretty depressed. Yeah, the death or something that causes deaths, regarded as a release from life. So it's not a, uh, it's not an unpleasant end. It is a release when you commit quietus. So like that. Maquis. I don't even remember what a maquis was. It's just such a word. Oh, rural guerrilla bands of French resistance fighters. And he doesn't like lead up to these. He just expects you, the reader, to know all these big posh fancy words that he's throwing out there. I love it. Definitely got to use the highlight and definition feature within your Kindle. I use that more in this book than any book that I've read before. Uh, just wait until you get into the great conversation on that. Well, yeah, but they're not modern writers, yeah, right? That's so true. They, possibly they were using words that were more common back in the day and now they've just lost their audience. Like complete side tangent. It does definitely feel like the English language has become smaller over time. Like we've really refined things down as much as we have like cultural integration and new words through like bringing in minorities and immigration and that kind of thing. Reading the old works. Oh my God. Just the words. The yeah. Volume and variety of words. Is crazy. I guess we have substitute maybe a lot of our vocabulary into technical domains. Like now that we have to describe yeah. computers and programs and social networks and all of these things that don't have great words for them, but we just have a lot more abstract ideas that we have to describe. So we don't have enough room in our brains for seven different words for happy. Yeah, that makes sense. And it could also just be the decline and death of poetry, right? Yes. He doesn't touch on that. Oh, does he touch on that? I don't remember. I feel like he might have touched on that in the book, The Decline of Poetry, but I don't remember. It wasn't that notable. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to put it out there, folks. I don't really like poetry that much, so I'm fine with it. I like a bit of prose. It. Sometimes John Green does a bit of prose. The Anthropocene yeah. Reviewed, if you want sort of poetry, is a very good podcast. It's sort of written in a poetic voice, but it's quite long form. They're half hour poems as they were. I enjoy that a lot. They make me cry sometimes, but I'll enjoy that a lot. I will second everything you just said there. Yep. Strong recommend. That'll be in the show notes. You can listen to a better podcast than that's finally. <laughs> but certainly he paints a grim picture. I found it actually quite an affecting book. A lot of these smart books that I read sort of wash through me and I say that's an interesting idea and don't think of it very much. But the below replacement birth rate, the, he harps on this quite a lot, that we are becoming alienated from each other. People are struggling to pair off. There are fewer marriages. There are fewer partnerships between people. The amount of sex that people are having is on the decline. The amount of marriages that are on the decline and the amount of children is on the decline. You know, it's civilization ending ultimately. If you follow that path through, it ends civilization because if we don't replace the birth rate, we become smaller and smaller until there's no more of us. And I found it really deeply affecting the way he painted this picture of we're all just addicted to virtual entertainment so we never get out of the house and meet anyone and we never have any kids and that will be the death of society. Like, I do not have children and my former wife April did not want to have children and I was perfectly fine with that and I almost feel like almost as a result of reading this book that I would like to have children now like it yeah, is that right. impactful that's hugely powerful I remember when yeah we broke the news to you guys that we were having a child that you were all so surprised and it seemed so strange for you to change your mind on that or for you to come out with a clear view on that I suppose is probably the better way of putting it yeah it must be pretty powerful then it was. And I, I don't want to read too much into this. I only finished the book two nights ago and I'm still grieving yeah, yeah, April yeah. is dead less than 12 months. Uh, and maybe I'm prone to all sorts of strange mood swings. But it, it, it was very impactful. I really think that one of the best things that I can do for the future of humanity would be to have my own kids. I really truly believe that might be a very good thing to do and a very rewarding thing for myself. Not just a, I should do this as an obligation, but that I would personally find that extremely, extremely rewarding to raise the next generation of humanity. So does he get into discussing adoption versus actually genetic offspring? 
I don't think he has strong opinions on that. I mean, he he certainly acknowledges that a lot of the children are being born in Africa, and this is why he's talking about our decadent society. He's talking about the West. He's not talking about the globe. He's talking about the weird people that we're talking: Western, industrialized, yep. rich, educated, and democratic. Wired. Mm, whoops. <laughs> and and he does he finds he finds quite a lot of sadness. And you know, I think our civilization is great. I think that there is a lot of self hatred in our civilization, and that, you know, a lot of the sins of colonialism are very bad. But our institutions, our rule of law, our general happiness, our personal freedoms are really good things. And so, if our society gets replaced, it's not necessarily going to be replaced by something better. But a lot of these good things, particularly, I would say, the individualism is leading to sadness and anomie and you know a general lack of cohesion in society. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, the arguments for alienation of the individual from society itself have been pretty strong. We talked previously in our discussion on financial independence around the critiques of basically withdrawing from society by choosing to just not engage in commercial transactions with others because you're just only looking out for yourself. I can definitely see one of the big arguments for why religion was important was just to go and have a community group to interact with every week. Uh, yep. And that has... Somewhere to go every Sunday where you're just there for each other. Yep. And it's a different environment. Like people have that at sports, I suppose. Like I've mentioned, I go yeah, to jujitsu. and a big one. When you moved away from town, that incentivized me to go back to jujitsu. But at the same time, it's... It's still different because it's not a environment where you discuss and you bond over ideas. It's a place where no. you bond over the concept of physical excellence, I suppose. And perhaps you're learning in the same place, but it's... It is it's a different thing. It's not a purely community thing. It's not your community fate. It's not your church fate sort of thing. It is a different task. And when you don't, you know, when you break your ribbon, don't go to jujitsu anymore. You don't go to jujitsu anymore. It's like at church, you would be sick enough and then your church would take care of you if you're sick yeah. enough to not go to church. Otherwise, you would go to church. <laughs> Just while you're talking about getting things from the market, et cetera, our favorite author from the first few podcasts, Brian Kaplan, I definitely remember one of his comments from Selfish Reasons to Have Four Kids. So I don't know whether we've been on this book before in the podcast, but his essential argument was like, everyone spends too much time and effort on their kids. They're going to grow up just fine. Don't abuse them, but, you know, take it easy on yourself and you can have a bunch more kids and just put like half the effort into all of them. And ultimately having three kids will be easier than having two kids and putting all that effort in because you're only putting half the effort into each of three kids and that's 150% effort. It's easy. And he's like, you know, maybe your friends will judge you for not driving your kids around to all the sports or, you know, not picking them up and dropping them off at school and being a helicopter parent. But don't worry, because the market can meet all your needs. And so who needs friends anyway? And I'm like, Brian Kaplan, are you depressed? That's the most depressing thing I've ever heard. I have an Amazon Prime subscription, therefore I don't need friends and I shouldn't be worried if they're judging me for how I'm treating my kid. Yeah, I mean, Brian Kaplan's also the guy who has a famous post where he's like, you should just build your own bubble and live inside of that. Don't actually worry about engaging with society. Just build a bubble that you'll be happy with. Yeah, so. he's a funny man, Brian Kaplan. But that was, you know, that was certainly where I first had this reaction to maybe not everything about modern liberal society and atomization and, you know, call it independence, call it liberalism, whatever you want to call it. Not everything about it is purely positive. There are negatives to this and that that really deep bond that societies had with each other, I'm going to say 50 years ago, probably, maybe longer because it is no longer the year 2000, much as I may think it is, 70 years ago no longer exists. And that may not be for the better of society. It comes with a lot of benefits. There's less discrimination against homosexuality would be a very good uh, example. But when you just let everyone do whatever they want, that reduces the bonds and it lets them do more things they want, which is a benefit. But, you know, it reduces that sense of society, which is a cost. And I'm not sure which way I go on that cost benefit equation. And certainly I think that something has been lost, even if it is a net benefit. Yeah, there's like a balance between a purely individualistic view of the world and a communitarian one where you get social pleasure, I suppose. And you may not even 
be able to directly compare that against your individual values. You may be able to trade them, like in terms of opportunity cost, you may choose to do some things over the other, but because it is so much more tangible to you, the individualistic benefits, you're more likely to choose them to the detriment of your social benefits in the modern society, I suppose. Yeah, and it's easier to choose those modern benefits because there is no expectation on you any longer or there's much lower expectation on you now. Yeah, so we've kind of decreased social accountability on that front, emphasized the importance of the individual, and at the end of the day resulted in potentially a weaker society overall. Yeah, and I think this is a common, perhaps conservative critique, but I think Ross Dutat puts it in a way that I'm much more receptive to than I've ever heard it before. That is, that's fascinating to me, actually, yeah. There's like a, a write-up from a history blog, aku.blog, I think is the web address, talking about why decadent societies effectively, like Rome, like late-stage Rome, uh, like others in that kind of vein, uh, ancient Jansi, Greece is another one. There's this common myth that those societies were weak and they were going to be taken over by people who were strongly ascetic and, you know, were the barbarians at the gates, right? Because they lived hard yes. lives, so they were hard people. So hard people take over from those soft people who were decadent. And the blog itself actually goes through and goes, well, no, they were decadent because they had all this excess economic capacity that they could then, you know, specialize and have a specialized military. And if you actually look at the historical record, these so-called weak decadent societies were actually stronger than the barbarians at the gates 97% of the time. It's just... Yep, because they could fund a professional military rather than a militia. Exactly. There is literally a chapter in the book called Waiting for the Barbarians where he argues, and this is sort of the argument for the strength of our decadent society and that nothing's going to change. And because all our higher education institutions, Harvard, Oxford, etc., will take the best of the best from China, from India to educate them in the West. And so we take out any possible competition, right? Those people, if they stayed in India, may have been the barbarians that would come to the West Gate and lead their people. But instead, they live modern Western, you know, cosmopolitan lifestyles. Yeah, we just integrate them. Yeah, it's just, I'm trying to like tease this apart here because it's very interesting to me that that economic power, the sheer economic power through the empowerment of the individual could still be end up being weaker as a result of almost evolutionary pressures at the end of the day where people no longer breed, right? So yeah. they get selected against for societies that are technically economically weaker and may not be able to field a military, but in the long run will actually outcompete them because they simply are more attached to communitarian beliefs and effectively just breeding, really. Effectively just breeding. I mean, you know, evolution doesn't care how happy you are. It only cares that you pass down your genes, ultimately. Oh, Moloch. What a beast. Moloch or the Methuselah trap, ultimately, right? Maybe we're in the golden age up until the breeding makes everyone depressed again because there's not enough, you know, we reach the carrying capacity of Earth or we destroy all our good technology or who knows what happens. Yeah, it's a balance. Like we could, you've quickly turned it into a hopeful view as well, Chris, because maybe this stagnation does end up balancing out at some point. Uh, there's technical solutions and, you know, SENS could break through. The organization for making senescence obsolete effectively, curing sure. aging. Yeah, maybe replace rate of 2.3 children per woman if a woman's living for five or six hundred years that is no longer an ambitious target exactly so maybe like that breaks through and we overcome previously held malthusian limits 
So that was always a dreadful thing, was the Malthusian limit being this is all that a given geography can produce in terms of foodstuffs to feed a people. If you exceed that, people are just going to die. Yeah, so you breed to the maximum capacity of the land and then, you know, no one can ever be happy because if you're happy and prosperous and there's food to spare, then you're just going to breed a bunch more people until there's only just enough food to survive. Yeah. And it's going to be, you know, gnashing of teeth, you know, it's going to be tooth and claw. And there's been like economic studies or historical studies, anthropological studies to say that a great proportion of all human lives lived to date have been at basically that Malthusian limit. So if we're overcoming that by creating all this economic power and also decreasing our will to over procreate, then that could be a positive outcome as well. It could be. I mean, certainly we live happy lives. I think I mostly live a happy life. Some circumstances accepted. And it is maybe a golden age that is unsustainable in the long run or is sustainable for too long and we all die out. I'm not sure. Who knows? It's the battle between Malthus and stagnation. Yeah. He's less moralizing perhaps than some Catholics you might expect to be. So he pretty much puts the lack of births squarely on the face of birth control, right? He doesn't say, oh, it's all these loose morals of modern women. Oh, it's all of the homosexuals or whatever. It's pretty much like people have the tent to choose and now we choose not to have kids. And that is what our modern society does. There's so many good things in our life that we have other things that we want to do instead of having kids. Yeah. I mean, I'd seen the argument somewhere. I can't remember where it was that a lot of the decline in the birth rate was just by increasing the participation rate of women in the workforce because women prefer working and getting paid for working to working being a parent because guess what being a parent's freaking hard being a parent's very very hard i certainly admire you and all the other parents out there it's a lot of work although there are statistics i see thrown around particularly in some communities that say that women's happiness has reduced in the past 50 years as the women's workforce participation has gone up overall satisfaction with life among women specifically has reduced that men's happiness has been fairly constant for the past 50 years but women's happiness overall has reduced i don't know whether those are manipulated statistics but that is certainly an argument that i've been made if you look at i think it was from fairly big place that more work and less time in the home has actually on balance made women less happy than they used to be i mean it could also be that they just have more options open to them now so they're less complacent with what they've got right sure or it could be that the workplace is still a more hostile environment to women than the home was when we had Definitely very that. culturally specific delineated duties of women in the home, men in the workforce. And when they tried to get into the workforce, they found it much harder than they should have. I don't know. There are multiple explanations, but it's certainly an interesting statistic. That is very interesting. Cool. What else you got? I feel like I just want to cut to the chase. So what I will say is we read The Great Stagnation a while ago and I sort of, I kind of gave it a, uh, this is a bit of a post-2008 thing. I'm not sure I find it that convincing, but I'm maybe now more convinced. So a passage that really stood out to me, and I don't think this is even Rostad Tats. I think he stole it from one of his lecturers kind of thing, but you're required to make a choice between option A and option B. With option A, you're allowed to keep 2002 electronic technology. So you get your Windows 98 laptop and you can still access Amazon or whatever, but you're allowed to keep running water and indoor toilets. You can't use anything invented since 2002 so no ipads no iphones none of that option b is you get everything invented in the past decade or the past two decades i guess facebook twitter ipads but you have to give up running water and door toilets you have to haul water from your dwelling to carry it out and carry out your waste even at 3 a.m on a rainy night the only toilet option is a wet and muddy walk to the outhouse what do you choose and this is like just one like in the you know between 1900 and 1950 ish maybe i've got the timeline slightly wrong but like we invented electricity indoor plumbing sewerage systems motor cars trains were a little earlier but not a lot earlier all of these things and like so 
even just one of those inventions compared to literally everything from the past 20 years, I'm probably going with my indoor toilet. Yeah. I mean, look, my grandfather's greatest ambition when he was growing up in Broadford was to be the guy who went around and collected everyone's toilet pans before that became obsolete. So, you know, that maybe there's a life there for some people, but that's mm. not for me. All right. I don't share my grandfather's same ambitions. So. <laughs> Night soil, man. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's tricky. I mean, I want mRNA vaccines. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I do want mRNA. So, you know, this is another talk about blogosphere that we lose that, you know, maybe 2020 is the end of the great stagnation with mRNA vaccines and solar power becoming drastically cheaper than other forms of energy, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe finally we hit that inflection point that we've been stagnant for 50 years and it's over. I'm not sure. That's a bit of a crystal ball into the future. We'll have to see what things look like in 10 years. But yeah, certainly when you put it that way, it definitely makes the achievements of the past 20 years, which I thought were pretty impressive. Like I know I'm talking on this podcast with you right now. I'm looking at my Kindle notes on my phone so that I can explain what it was I was reading at the time. And they are very technologically impressive techniques. But compared to running water, I really like running water. I mean, yeah, look, just before listeners criticize us, yes, running water existed in Roman times, okay? But the current systems around purifying water and having a whole town set up to handle it is a bit different. And the modern government state handling that kind of infrastructure is a heck of a thing. And for that to come out of the early 1900s, look at the GDP per capita of Australia or the United States around 1900. Who does that compare with right now? Probably India. Probably India, yeah. And you know who's actually weighing up? Who is actually weighing up the choice between having a phone and toilets? People in India. Well, that's true. And they're they're choosing choosing phones. phones, Well, that's an interesting point. Jeez. Hmm. That is a very interesting one. Yeah, I don't know. It's just very difficult to install sewage system under every city. That's a big big thing to do. It's a big thing to do. I don't know. It's just like fascinating how well what has actually come out in the last 20 years is at hooking into human psychology rather than actually addressing basic bodily human needs. Yeah. I mean, it speaks perhaps to how important our psychology is to us. Yeah. I've had this discussion with fairly religious friends of mine and like a lot of the technology of the past 20 years is communication technology. It allows me to keep in contact with my family and friends like I am doing literally right now. And that is of extreme value to me. Yeah. But also if I never left my village because I couldn't, because it was the middle ages and no one ever went more than about 20 k from the house <laughs> they were born in, I wouldn't have to have any of this. No. Know, maybe that's better. Perhaps there's a lot to unpack there. It's very interesting that this is coming from a Catholic writer, right? Because mm. pre- scientific revolution slash enlightenment a lot of the basis for technological stagnation was driven by the focus on religion yeah and like you shouldn't actually have to worry about anything in the material world and technological progress what you should be worried about is the enhancement of your psychology and of your soul basically yes and by creating you know an attachment with god or if you're buddhist like a detachment from suffering and the wants and needs of the world you don't need to worry about making the world a better place whereas this is kind of arguing from the opposite direction it's like we're all stagnant here and we're not going anywhere something's wrong it's just a very interesting place for this to come from it is yeah like i say he's this unique author yeah he gets described as very american with that american entrepreneurial can-do techno-optimist futuristic kind of view and deeply catholic as well so he's an interesting mix there's not a lot of writers like him which is probably why i find him so interesting to read yeah uh, it's very representative of the states i remember i was over in the states for a workshop with one of my teams everyone on my team was american um i just had a boss who was american and had a remote management relationship that way and we were doing the standard icebreaker stuff going around the room and everyone was like saying their core values basically and 80% of the room were saying how much they believed in Jesus and 
their core ties to the Christian faith. And I cannot imagine ever seeing that happen in Australia. Like as, no. as much as I see that our cultures have so much overlap and being Australian, it feels like you're just another state of the United States with how much we <laughs> are inculcated with all the cultural information coming out of there. But that was just such an alien experience to me being in that room with 80% of people. So this was a room of 20 people, 16 people out of 20 saying in their core values to the whole room, Christianity. Yeah, that feels very unlikely in an Australian room of a similar, in a similar situation. Very, very unlikely. So yeah, good to get a perspective from someone like that. And it is honestly kind of surprising and a shame that it is not more visible. Yeah, particularly Americans, the most religious Western country by far. So it is surprising that that viewpoint doesn't come across more in what we read, given we mostly read American authors. I guess there's just a lot of gatekeepers, man. There's a lot of gatekeepers. There's a lot of self-selection, right? You know, there's yep. something like 40% of Americans don't believe in evolution and are young earthers, sort of 6,000-year-old, 40%, 40%. Like, if I were to go over and see my uncle who lives in America and probably has hundreds of friends, do you think any one of those friends would be a creationist or a young earther? I would say zero. And yeah. like, if you just say statistically, if we were to flip a coin on that 40%, what would be the chance of 200 people all flipping the way of like, no, no, I think that evolution is true. It, it, it is literally impossible. These self-selection bubbles that we find ourselves in are so incredibly strong. Yeah, that's fascinating. So there you go. There's some meta commentary on the book there for you as well, listeners. We don't just affix the actual content. We affix the overall meta landscape too. The landscape around it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very interesting book. So I feel like I took a bit away from it. I almost want to digest bits of it more, read a few of the more chapters. I've tried to read some reviews of it. I feel like it's an important book. I would recommend people to read it. It's interesting and I think it's important. I don't think well, it's universally good, but I think it's quite good. Great. Great to read. Maybe I'll have to check it out. I look forward to it coming up in our notes to ourselves over the next three weeks. It's coffee bedtime. It's coffee bedtime. Now, I have an idea of what I want to make a coffee bed on, but I don't need the numbers around it, so I'm sort of quickly Googling that while we're at it. So, I, you know, in the spirit of Ross do that, and this is what I try to do and fail most weeks, is tie our coffee bed to what we're reading. I sort of want to talk about the birth rate of Australia over the next, I don't know how long. Uh, there's meant to be a COVID baby bust, from what I hear, that during 2020 there were far fewer conceptions and births uh, than even a normal year, which Australia is currently sitting at one7 four children per woman, per adult woman, which is well below the replacement rate of two and three. Wow, Canada's at 1.5. Here we go. We've got similar countries ranked by birth rate. I think it'd be more fun to bet on whether another country will overtake us in the birth rate. Okay, sure. So let's pick a country. New Zealand. We're just slightly edging ahead of New Zealand. Ooh, yeah, got to love that Anzac Kiwis. rivalry. Are they too similarly? Are they too similar? Maybe I like Ireland is lower than us at 12.01. That surprises me because it's a fairly religious population in Ireland, I thought. Yeah, famously so. Catholic. Famously, yeah, that's particularly between Northern Ireland and regular Ireland or the Republic mm. of Ireland. I'm surprised to see their birth rate lower than ours because religiosity can tend to correlate with higher family size. Certainly that's the case in Israel, which is nearly double our birth rate. Wow, good job, Israel. How interesting. All right. I want to race between the United States and Australia since we've been talking so focused on the states. Okay. So the US is at 12 births per thousand people and Australia is at 12.4 births per thousand people. So what do you think? Do you think the US can overtake Australia? By when? By when. So you think it's inevitable that the US overtakes Australia? I think just random fluctuation is going to happen at some point, to be honest. Big population no, no, fluctuation. But I do wonder... 
it's a like that's a pretty big shift. I feel like, I, you know, again, somewhat depressingly, I don't think many people are going to read Ross did that book and become sad like me. I think that it's going to continue to go down amongst weird people, and the only thing that's going to increase the birth rate is immigration. And immigrants may have yeah. large family sizes because they grew up in large family sizes. Like this is my theory. I think it's also quite likely that the US will take over Australia because they've just got a much more open immigration policy to those countries with higher birth rates, right? Yep, like we have a very educated focused immigration policy in Australia, yep. which is kind of almost selecting for those demographics that Ross Duthat talks to, to say they're going to have a low birth rate, right? Yep. So it feels like the US are going to take us over just purely because of those immigration dynamics. It does uh, feel dynamics. more likely for the US. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it's likely that the US overtakes us due to those demographic changes. So how long will that take? I'm going to say, I want to say 2030 again, because it's just a nice round number and humans love round numbers. So if they do it before 2030, you want the coffee? Yep. I can give you that because I think it's going to be a very gradual shift. I'm not sure. It just feels like one of these very gradual trends to change and reverse. How much has it shifted just generally in the last 10 years? Uh, in 2011, Australia was at 13.5 and we're now at 12.4. So that's a shift of one birth per thousand people. And what's happened in the States? Oh, hang on, I'm already in the States. Hmm. It was 13.3 in the States in 2010. So we're basically equal in 2010. Right, so they've and shot down faster They've than dropped us. faster than us, wow. That is interesting. Maybe that's tied to the GFC. Yeah, Australia did come out of the GFC relatively unscathed, which was pretty impressive. Ooh, that makes me worried. Yeah, given that they like... got hit way worse by COVID than we did. Yeah. Ooh. Mm. 2035? 2035. I mean, I don't like to, but I'd probably still give you that bet. All right, 2035. That gives us another, 2035. like, we're really extending the friendship here. Ooh, I hope we have a long, a long friendship and a long podcast. Some of these coffee bets may be done in, like, Soylent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, coffee will actually be banned by then, and it'll be yeah, like, yeah, this will be, be a really drug. expensive bet. Definitely. I have to get onto the black market. <laughs> Man, you want to see something crazy, look at this chart. For Ireland, the drop-off there is just enormous. Really? Yeah. I wonder what happened. GFC. Wow. Yep. Yeah, 1,000% is, right? I suppose Ireland really got hit by the GFC, right? Yeah. The Irish Tiger got annihilated. Wow. It's so... It, it's very strange that things like that can have an impact. Like, we're definitely richer than 10 years ago, right? We are yeah. right now more economically stable and richer as an average, and yet people don't feel that cost of housing or insecurity of jobs or whatever it is is stopping people from having children. All right. Well, on a lighter note... What's happening in Diablo 2? Is the sorcerers having any children? Because I'm maniacally fixated on that now. <laughs> Diablo 2, there are still happenings. I spoke a couple of weeks ago or last week about Indrek being back and he has come back and there is actually some drama and there is some news going on in the Diablo 2 front. So don't fear, listenership. Diablo 2, it remains dynamic even after 20 years. So what has happened in the last three days, in fact? Diablo 2 speedrunning? up until about 18 months ago, was all based on this premise of real-time attack. So you start the timer. We talked about this in our very first episode. Yeah, we fact. have talked about this, yes. You start the timer when you start playing the game, and when you kill Bale, you end the timer. And how long that goes in real time, as if you started a stopwatch just on your desk, that is how they used to measure speedruns. About 18 months ago, they came up with a strategy where you have to reset over and over again and just kill the same enemies to level up really fast to get past a certain checkpoint in the game. That disadvantaged people who were running the game on worse computing setups 
for a 20 year old game, kind of crazy. And it also incentivized people to enable an option in the background of the game called no sound, because if you didn't load all the sound files, it refreshed faster. Yep. And what's happened in the last three days is Indrek actually beat the real time attack time for the hardcore sorceress players one normal speed run that's a big one that's the one of the big records right that is like i make fun of all of the ridiculous records you do but that's like that's actually one of the big ones yeah that's like peak runs it's like very targeted all the people who are super into diablo speed running that's the record they want to get because it's going to be the fastest one it's going to be the hardest one to get indrek beat the real-time attack for it and then he looked at his time and because 18 months ago they instead switched to a different timing system called in-game time which eliminates those loading periods he was actually slower than the record wow so the controversy the real-time attack old record was one hour and five minutes the in-game time was one hour one minute and 30 seconds and he did this with a specific setup so he didn't have to reset as often right he did it in one hour two minutes and 45 seconds real-time attack and one hour two minutes in in in-game time so because he didn't have to reset as often the difference between those times wasn't as stark And he doesn't get the record because they changed the the rules to be based on in-game time. Ouch. Just to make sure that people weren't running Diablo 2 on their ASICs, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I really want someone to build an ASIC for Diablo 2. This is important to me. (laughs) We got all the Bitcoin miners. That thing's dead. We did Bitcoins back in 2017. They blew up, I'm pretty sure, and no one ever bought one ever again. So yeah, that's that's the news for this week. More drama on that front. I think that'll kick off more discussions on the rules and how this in-game timer setup actually works and what's more engaging to watch and what's more engaging for people to run. It's it's interesting to see it play out. And it's it's funny in his Discord, he has like a comment reflecting on world record times in 2019. And it's like him celebrating with his arms in the air and being really <laughs> pumped about getting the world record and then world record times in 2021. And it's just him with his head in his hands being <laughs> so frustrated <laughs> by it all. So. And he didn't get the real record. Poor <sighs> Indrek. Poor Indrek. He'll get back there. Um, and then the final bit of Diablo news I'll just tack on the end here is I got a comment on my world record commentary that I put up on YouTube a few weeks ago. Uh, someone <laughs> really liked it. So that was really nice. And I really appreciate them. Maybe I'll do another commentary of one of Bender's normal runs or something like that. Positive feedback is very nice. We appreciate it on this show. Brian appreciates it it's on his YouTube. Absolutely. Being a small scale media personality, quite fun. Being a <laughs> large scale media personality, probably not that fun. So be careful. But... <laughs> I think small scale is still overstating it here, Chris. Minuscule. Hey, top 25% of podcasts. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. I'll take that. Top 25% of podcasts and 27 views of my Diablo video. There 27 you go. views. I mean, that's almost as much as our podcast gets downloads. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks for being with us again, everyone. That was great. There's a lot of books to read. I'll get to them all one day, but for now, I've read this one. First step, destroy the publishing industry.